Well, today um, I'm going to keep going in our called series, and uh, today's a, a, a very, uh, I think, a very practical topic, as the Sermon on the Mount is practical. Uh, we're going to deal with something that, that all of us deal with, uh, and, and no, nobody in the room doesn't deal with this at, at times. Um, it, when I was putting all this t- together, it made me think about the fact that th- th- this, you're going to probably think I'm, I'm, I'm joking, but I'm really not. I, I, um, I, I've always had a a, a true admiration for hippies. Um, and you say, what, what, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, well, I'm talking about 60s, 60s hippies. Uh, not, not, not the, uh, what's that Woodstock? Not the Woodstock idea. Just the idea that people could, that people, you know, when I think about a, a hippie, I asked my daddy one time, dad, because he grew up a child of the 60s and he saw Hendrix and he saw the Stones and he saw the Rolling Stones for $5 at Municipal Auditorium. You know, I mean, it, and how would he have known, right? And I said, dad, why didn't you ever join the hippie movement? He said, you know, I always kind of wanted to. He said, but I just, I just never could not care about anything. I, I, just, I just didn't have it in me not to care because every real hippie that I knew was awesome at they just didn't really care. And, and, and I'm not talking about not taking a bath now. I'm not talking about that, okay? I, I'm, I'm talking about just being, have y'all ever, y'all ever have any friends in your life, you know, beads or not beads? You ever, you got any friends in your life that you admire because they just roll with it? I've got friends that I admire because they just roll with it. And it makes me really mad at them uh, because life always seems to work out no matter what. And then I got a tight grip on stuff and not them. They just roll with it. And I'm all, and at the end of the day, we're both at the same spot, but they're way less stressed than I am. And it, and it really makes me admire that. And, and so you've all, all probably got friends that way. I've got a few, I'm thinking of one right now and, and I just admire him for how he just, it's not that he doesn't care. He just doesn't care a whole lot. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, it, it, it's just, it's really great. So today we're going to talk about being called to what I'm going to say is unfiltered trust, unfiltered trust, trust without limits, trust without conditions, trust without predefined boundaries, right? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know that more than half of you in this room really, 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 really struggle with, with worry, anxiety, uh, worried looking at the world around you. You know, in fact, no kidding, the statistics on anxiety in the last 10 to 15 years in America are astronomical. The, 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 the sp- a spirit of anxiety has come across our country, and I've got reasons why I think that is, but I couldn't prove them. Today we're going to talk about trust that doesn't have limits, unfiltered. And so I want you to turn in the Sermon on the Mount to uh, Matthew 6. Now, as you turn there at Matthew chapter 6, I don't have it on the screen. If, if you're on a tablet or something, it's New American Standard is what I'm using, NASB. And um, I'm going to tell you, this, this passage is, is actually tied to money, but it, Jesus goes into a few more things that aren't about money, and, and it kinda, he kind of talk, starts talking about all of life. And so Matthew 6, 25, let's read it together. Here we go. Jesus said, uh, so for this reason, that is, you can't serve God in wealth. And so therefore, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life. So he starts with your actual life. As to what you will eat or what you will drink or nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? 
And then Jesus does something that Jesus always does. I, I really think that Jesus was very much an on-the-feet preacher, you know, off the, you know, just on the cuff or off the cuff, as, as we say. He was good on his feet. Uh, there were times you see Jesus drawing in the sand. I think Jesus was really good at, at basically considering the, the, the birds of the air. And, and I, you know, everybody knows that. They're right there flying over their head in the moment. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow. They do not reap or they gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Verse 28. And why are you worried about clothing? Now, he's not getting on to him, by the way. He's just, he's just making a point. Observe how the, the, the flowers, the lilies of the field, look at how they grow. They don't work. They don't spin. They, they, that is, they, they don't have a job. And yet I say to you that not even Solomon, who, if you're not familiar, Solomon was considered the, the richest man in all of the Bible. And yet I say that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. You know what he's saying right there, don't you? God's saying, when I made that lily, I made it more complex than Solomon could ever adorn himself. It's a pretty fascinating statement, really. And so if, if God clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have a little faith. Don't, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what, what are we going to drink or what will we wear for clothes? This is a big verse right here. It's a very revealing verse. Verse 32, for the Gentiles, that is the people that are outside the faith, that is people that are not followers of the Yahweh God. In other words, a modern day way of saying that, the, the, the people that don't believe in Jesus. For even they eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first, make the chief aim of your heart the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Man, there's a, there's a whole lot there when it comes to, to worry. And, and so Jesus is, you know, talk, he, there's a lot he's revealing. And so let's, let's start with just defining it. You know, at the end of the day, what, what is worry? And by the way, you know, notice something about Jesus. Notice that he didn't say, um, I know you're never going to worry. He, he presupposed, let not your heart be troubled. Meaning, I know that it is. When he's saying, don't worry, he's saying, I know that you are. You're prone to it. I get it. So at the end of the day, I think worry is what I would call fear of loss. Worry, worry is, is, is really, I think worry is anxiety, uh, trying to control, and that manifests itself in all kinds of ways. But at the end of the day, when we get anxious and worried about something, it is our way of tightening the grip because we're afraid that if we don't tighten the grip, that we will lose whatever it is we're trying to put a grip on, Right? And listen, that doesn't make you a bad person. That makes you a very human person. That doesn't make you a bad Christian. It just means that we are prone to be overwhelmed. We're prone to want to tighten the grip. We're, we're prone to not, to not go backward. In fact, uh, one, one of my uh, great friends, Milt Lauder, psychologist, said the research indicates that when you, he's a PhD. When you look at the chemicals of the brain, the, the chief number one issue in the human brain is literally fear of survival. And it shows up in everything we do. So, so that we're, we're kind of programmed to, to, to try to make it. So that's just kind of how the brain, sometimes we get sideways there. 
Fear of loss is what we're dealing with. And so that's why Jesus says in verse 25, notice the first thing he says. He says, do not be worried about what? Your life. Your life. And really what he's saying is don't be worried about the immediate. Right? Don't be worried about the immediate. Because kingdom people, what's the Sermon on the Mount about? The Sermon on the Mount, overall, if you were to raise up above the Sermon on the Mount and look down on it from 10,000 feet, then what you're going to discover is that Jesus is talking about kingdom living. He's talking about living different than the flow of the world. He's talking about living at a different pace, a different rhythm, a different aim, a different target. so, So he's rising above it. And if you look at the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, it is about us living for the kingdom of God. And kingdom people, and listen to me now. Kingdom people are far more concerned about kingdom things than they are immediate things. Because only kingdom things last. So that's why the kingdom of God matters. And so Jesus said, seek first for a reason. Now, I want to say this to you. Jesus Jesus isn't saying, notice what he's not forbidding. Jesus is not saying that you should never have forethought. Jesus didn't forbid you planning. You know, some people look at this and, and uh, you know, I had a friend of mine uh, and, and they, 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 do, they do nothing. They, they want to plan anything because they feel it's like trusting God. I, I actually had a friend of mine who had someone in his family that, that one time uh, his, his, retirement, uh, his retirement portfolio was, was really almost non-existent, if, if anything. And my friend asked him, why, why did you do that? He said, I'll tell you, I really thought that the Lord would return before I ever died. Okay, that's just not smart, okay? I mean, that, that doesn't make that guy a bad guy. I mean, I, lo- I love his faith, but the reality is God, God's not saying you can't plan. God's not saying that you, you can't try and, and, and look out. Jesus isn't, isn't saying that. No, Jesus, Jesus is not forbidding strategic thought. He's not forbidding forethought. He's forbidding anxious thought. And that's a whole different deal. Anxious thought's a whole different deal. And you've been anxious and I've been anxious and we know what that feels like. So he's saying, no, it's, it's different because anxious thought, we're going to get into that in, in just a second. You see, I, this is where I think we struggle, at least me. Um, I don't know if, you, if you've ever dealt with this on this level, but I do at times in full disclosure. I think it's way easier to trust God on what I would call the whole like the whole of life. I, 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 I trusted Jesus with my eternal salvation a long time ago. I trust Jesus with making the sun come up, right? I, I trust Jesus. I do. I trust Jesus with gravity. It's a, gravity is a great concept. I'm glad he instituted that one, right? Uh, um, I, I, I trust Jesus with the whole. It's the sections of life that really can get you twisted up. Have you ever noticed that? Like, it's way easier to trust Jesus to make the sun come up than deal with a teacher who's, who you feel like is out to get your daughter. That's hard. It's way easier to trust Jesus with the fact that if the earth were tilted just a little bit one way or the other, we would all die, says the scientists that don't even believe in God. That's easy to trust Jesus with that. It's just harder to trust Jesus with things like bosses that you don't even pray for. 
because you don't like them. Or somebody in your, don't act like you don't deal with this, people. Don't look at me like I'm the only one, all right? Because you know you do. No, it's hard to trust God with the sections. It's easier to trust God with the whole. And what I want to say to you, listen to me, this is very important. I want you to know that God gets just as much glory out of your unfiltered trust with the little things as he does the big things. He really does. And so we want to be people that that don't have fear of loss because we're not holding on to our lives anyway. Why? Because we're kingdom people. We're trying to be. But let's, let's ask a bigger question. What is it that fear does? If worry is fear, and I really believe that it is, I, th- I believe it's fear of loss, then what does fear do? I would say the first thing that fear does, the first truth is that fear diverts your best energy. Have you ever noticed that? When you've been in a season of fear? Fear diverts your, your best energy. Look in verse 31. Jesus said, do not worry then about what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will have for clothing. You know, that's a fixated mindset. That's a fixed mindset, meaning that I am so locked down on this immediate issue that I can't see anything else going on around me. Have you ever been, as we would call, obsessed? For me, only daily, okay, about something, right? Michelle can tell you, you know, when I get my mind on something like it's just, it's there, you know, and that has really good qualities and it also has really bad qualities. But we can fixate on things. And, and so, so what happens, though, is when you fixate on the immediate, it diverts what I would call your best energy mentally. And, 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 and so what ends up happening is when you fixate on something like, in this particular case, what, what are we going to wear? What, what are we going to eat? See, in those days, life was way less stable. Many people, even in the world today, many people still buy their dinner at the market as they walk home. And if they don't make a little bit of money in the bazaar or on the side of the road, what they eat changes from day to day. That's most of the world. So, so it, when we're fixated on things that our Heavenly Father has already fixed, it diverts your, your best energy. And don't, listen, by the way, don't think that I'm exempt from this, okay? I, I, you know, uh, the Lord really turned to a corner for me really earlier this year uh, as I began to evaluate metrics and as I began to evaluate standards and things we want to aim at at Clearview. Let me let you into the life of a, of a pastor for just a quick second. Not that you ever really want to go into that. You don't. It's not as exciting as you might think it is. I mean, one time um, when uh, Tucker was like four, he, he said, uh, you know, Dad, I think I really want to be a, this is a true story. He said, I think I really want to be a preacher. I said, really? Yeah. He said, because you just, you just don't really work. You, you, and I'm like, is that what you see? Like, what do you think? I just pray all the time or something like, yeah, but he really did say that. And, and so uh, anyway, well, whatever, uh, you know, so I won't let you into the life of, uh, of kind of how we look at, let me, let me just, I made this up it's this year, this bar graph. If there's two things that, that, uh, that, that pastors measure success by, it's attendance and giving. That's the honest truth. 
The average pastor, if, I meet, if I'm walking, if I go into Bishop's or if I go into Connor's or if I run into a pastor in the airport in Kansas and I see another pastor, within, I promise you both of us within the first 60 seconds when we find out we're pastors, there's going to be a question that's going to be asked. And that question is going to sound like this 100% of the time, what do you run? And, and what, what do you, that doesn't mean that I put on Sacconis and take off, all right? No, what that means is how big is your church? Because he's leveraging where he is with me and I'm with him. And it's not a competition because that tells me, just like for many of you in business, how big you're, well, we're a $50 million company. Well, that tells you a lot about what they deal with because a $50 million company deals with a whole different set of issues versus a $2 million company. And a $500 million company deals with a whole different set of issues than a $50 million company. And so, so what we're, it's, it's your way of knowing what this guy has to deal with in his life. So... In full disclosure, most of my life, even though you know it shouldn't matter, it does. If attendance is up, your mood is up. If attendance is down, your mood is down. If giving is strong, your vibe is good in your heart. If it's not, then and you measure your success, and actually not your success, you measure your competency often on those two metrics. But then this listing... I. Uh, had, had some, someone that's a really intelligent uh, leader and uh, leader of, of, of leaders, an executive coach, and he and I were talking one time, and we were talking about putting goals in front of you as a leader that, that actually matter and that are healthy, healthy metrics versus, and it's not that you don't want to measure attendance, and it's not that you don't want to measure giving. You do, but let me tell you something. This is what occurred to me earlier in the year. I can't control whether you come to church and I can't make you give money. And so I was allowing my, my entire ministry career since the time I was 18 years old. And, and most guys would admit this, I would hope, that most of my career, I was letting my emotions be driven by two things that I literally cannot make happen. I can't make you get out of bed I can't make you care about honoring God with your money. I can't make you do either of those. And yet, those were metrics that often dictates my mood. So I'm really trying to be a good hippie when it comes to that. Because I, I, can't, I can't change it. I can affect it a little bit, but I can't change it. It takes your best energy away. And I'll tell you something else fear does. I would say fear warps perspective. You ever notice that? You ever notice that when you're afraid of something, it toxifies, it, you know, when you put the lenses, if, if your lenses are based in fear and worry, have you noticed that uh, in the words of the, 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 the prophet John Conley, the rose-colored glasses, you ever notice that, that, that only the country music people would get that reference, but that those rose-colored glasses tint the, the way the world is seen, right? If you're toxified with worry, then your perspective is tinted. It, it filters everything that you interpret. So when, when, you, when you have an anxious heart, what, what happens with perspective, the reason that I say that fear warps perspective is because here's what fear does. It exalts the worst possible outcome. It, it really does. It exalts the worst possible outcome. And so 
we, we do that to ourselves. And that's why Jesus is coming at it. One, one of my best friends in the world is a guy named Tim Bassanio. And Tim one time said, you know, you've seen him here at church before. He lives right here in Franklin. Tim said one time, the world is full of really bad things, 99% of which will never happen to you. And I thought, man, that, that's really good. It's really true. 99% of it is never going to happen to you. It, but it, it warps your perspective because it exalts the worst possible outcome. I think fear does something else, and I think this is a big one. I believe that fear really holds our soul hostage. Now, if you're new to Clearview, you're, you're going to know that we, or you're going to discover, if you're new here, you're watching online, maybe you're listening on a podcast right now, but, but if, if you've just come into the Clearview world, we talk about the soul a lot. And your soul is not the eternal part of you, uh, con- uh, contrary to what most people have been led to think over the years. Your soul is your mind, your heart, your will, your emotions. It's your attitude. It's the view. You. It's, it's, if you look at the Bible, the soul is the emotional part of a lot of what you do. And, and so your soul is something that when you become gripped in fear or anxiety, what happens is the best of you gets held hostage. Your mind. Have you ever, have you ever noticed something about when you're really anxious over something? Have you ever noticed how it dominates your thoughts? I mean, dominates them. Have you ever noticed that when you become really concerned about something, how much you go to bed with it on your mind and it was up three minutes before you were? You ever notice that? Just waiting on you, waiting on you to get up because we're not done with this. Right? It's awful. And it's also exhausting. It's exhausting. And listen, Jesus didn't come out of the grave for you to be exhausted. He didn't. He didn't. Jesus said, I came to give you what? Life. Life. The thief comes to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I came. To give you life. Jesus also said, these things I've spoken to you, my peace I give to you. Peace not as the world gives, but the peace that I give so that your joy may be full. Have you ever noticed the first thing that gets taken from you when you become anxious is joy? You start kicking dogs, slapping kids. You know, don't act like you don't do that. You know you do. Is that just me? Sorry. You know, we got insurance though. Um, it holds you hostage because it seeks to dominate you. Now, I'm going to give you one more area that I really believe. And by the way, this is just something I've observed. With anxiousness and anxious thoughts in a life dominated by worry, is I believe that fear creates self-centeredness. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. If you look in verse 32, Jesus said, let's go up to verse 31. Jesus said, now do not worry then saying, what are we going to eat or what are we going to drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. What Jesus is saying right there is that when you live a life dominated by fear or worry, 
or trying to control every outcome, then you're basically living as if God doesn't exist. And it's all on your shoulders. You're living like the pagans, is what he's saying. And he's not saying, you're acting like a pagan. He's not saying that. He's saying you're living as if. In fact, he's saying you've walked backward into a life that demonstrates unredeemed behavior. You're living in a life that demonstrates unredeemed living. You're acting like you don't know that there is a redeemer. And when I say it creates self-centeredness, here's why I think this is so important. And don't miss this. At the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are not to live for ourselves anymore. At the heart of the gospel is that we are to live for a kingdom of God. At the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that because we have a whole different home waiting on us and this world is not our home, at the heart of the gospel is that our life is not our own. So why do we worry about it anyway? Because we weren't called. Paul told us in Philippians 2 to to take this mind in you that was the mind of Christ who did not seek his own glory. You see, so at the heart of the gospel, we are to have ambition for the kingdom of God. That's why you hear me talk about the kingdom of God so much. It comes up, rarely a sermon goes by that I don't use that phrase. Why? Because whether we're in the Sermon on the Mount or not. Because it is the, the kingdom of God is, is what filters and paints the picture for how I see the world. But when, let me tell you something about fear that you already know. What I've noticed about fear, and if fear is fear of loss, if worry is fear of loss, have you ever noticed that when you're truly anxious about something or when you're really bothered or when you're really trying to control an outcome and when you're obsessing about something with your grandkids or maybe your, your daughter's not raising her son the way you want her to? Have you ever noticed that when you obsess about those things, when you're obsessing about your job and somebody in the sales, on the sales team that you really think is sabotaging the bottom line, have you ever noticed that when you're obsessed about something, that everybody in your life becomes either an ally or an enemy? And here's how it happens. Because you've got this pain, and you've got this issue, and you've got this worry, and you've got this, you've got this thing. So you're, let's say, let's, hypothetically, you're, you're really worried about your kid having a great future. And all of a sudden, they're not doing great in geometry. Right? All of a sudden, they're not doing great in school. And they've got a really hard teacher that said, well, you know what? Um, I caught them cheating on a test, so they're going to get a zero. And you're going, well, don't do that. What if they don't get into college? So you see parents trying to upsurp something that's going to cripple their kid if they know that mom and dad is always going to bail them out. 
So all of a sudden, the teacher becomes the obstacle to your child's future because it's just one test. And if you bail them out, all they're going to learn is that I can steal and not pay for it. But you see, in the moment, we're so obsessed about the, the temporary that what happens is everybody becomes either somebody that helps you with your pain or contributes to your pain. Fear creates selfishness out of us. And that's just not at the heart of the gospel, of why Jesus came out of the grave. Now, why would Jesus say, why would Jesus say then at the very last, look at what he says in verse 33, Seek first, make, make the chief aim of your heart the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Hey, by the way, do you realize that is a promise? Do you hear that? Do you hear what Jesus said? No kidding. Take a minute. Slow your mind down. Do you realize that's a promise from Jesus himself? That promise is... Jason, if you will just make your chief aim my glory, I promise you, you will have everything you need. That's a promise. So why is Jesus going into this? Why, why is this a big deal? Why did he call us to seek first the kingdom of God? And I'll, I'll tell you why. It goes back to the first and the second commandment. The first and second commandment are that we are to love the Lord our God and we are to make no other gods. See, when you begin to fixate and obsess and worry, then what you do is you will create an idol. Now listen to me. I'm telling you I'm right. I don't often say that. I'm telling you I'm right. And the reason that I'm right is not because I read it and studied about it in seminary. The reason that I'm right is because I've been on the wrong side of this before. I've been on the wrong side of this. So I'm speaking, you know, in reality. It, it looks different for all of us. For some of you, it's the way you look. It's your body. For some of you, it's your money. For some of you, it's your future and it's your success. For some of you, it's your career path. For some of you, it's trying to please your parents, even at the age of 55. For some of you, it's education or how much you have, square footage. It's got a thousand faces. But what ends up happening is idols are sneaky. And so we end up saying if this is how you all, you want to know how you got an idol in your life? Ask this question. If you find yourself saying this, if I could just blank, it would all be better. If I could just get my daughter to blank, it would all be better. You know, if I, if I just could do blank, it would all be better. And the truth is, no, it won't. Because we can't control what happens tomorrow anyway. It'll all be better because God has fixed what you fixate on. 
So the reason it goes back to the first commandment is God doesn't want you looking. Pay attention to me, Christian. God doesn't want you looking to any other fountain for life other than the fountain that he provides because he knows it will toxify your life. And I wrote it down this way so I wouldn't forget to say it, that God did not create you and redeem you only to have you replace him with the unredeemable. He's not going to let you replace him. He loves you so much. He did it with Israel. He leveled them many times because they were chasing idols. And why did he do it? To drive them home. He didn't do it because he's mean. He did it because he loved them. To drive them home to his heart. When we begin to have fear of loss, then we begin to look for life in something that could never provide it. And kingdom people aren't willing to do that. You know why? Because we have been on the right side of the cross. And we have been on the right side of the open tomb. And we have been on the right side of who Jesus is. And I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You know, Wayne Watson, he's a, I guess maybe he's still singing. He was very famous in the 80s and 90s, Christian singer. And he had a line in the song one time that I've never forgotten. He said, is there anyone, is there anyone who, looking back in faith, can deny that the Father knows best? You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter, but sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world is sending them the word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.